Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Killing Game. Serial killer Rodney James Alcala murdered at least nine women and girls across the United States in the 1970s though his true death toll could number more than 100. He spent time in prison for sexual assault and other crimes in the 70s, but continued to rape and kill when he was released. Autopsies of some of Alcala's victims revealed that he would strangle women, then wait for them to regain consciousness before the final kill. Alcala also sometimes arranged the corpses of women he murdered in poses. He has been behind bars since his July 1979 arrest for the abduction and murder of a 12-year-old girl. Alcala was sentenced to death in California, but died of natural causes in 2021. Before his reign of terror came to an end, he managed to appear as a bachelor on the then-hit TV show, The Dating Game. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Murder Most Foul. Uh, the case we are going to be talking about today is uh, the case of Rodney Alcala, a serial killer who was uh, on death row for many years and uh, just uh, actually just happenstance just died this year uh, in custody. Um, I don't think he really ever got close to the electric chair or whatever there's yeah, the lethal injection, I guess. And he died on July 24th this year, 1920, I'm sorry, <laughs> 2021. And my guest today to discuss this very interesting case is Alan R. Warren. And he's written a fascinating book called The Killing Game, The True Story of Rodney Alcala. Uh, welcome, Alan. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. So let's start a little bit about your background for, for my listeners who may not uh, have read your books, who do have more than one, uh, but tell us a little bit about your background and uh, sort of what draws you to this. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm not really sure if there's anything specific. It just sort of happened a step at a time because I was uh, producing people's shows on the radio um, and eventually I got on myself and um, the show I'm doing was concerned with, um, you know, mysteries and finding out answers. And not that we would necessarily find the answer, but we certainly wanted to uh, explore it. So, and that covered mystery and paranormal crime, um, all sorts of areas. So there's a lot of crime going on in the U.S. And so crime came up a lot. And uh, so it just went one thing from another. And then a couple of newspapers asked me to do some articles. And from there, I got into a comp compilation book. And then uh, a publisher asked me to do some uh, quick read books for, you know, crime in a series. And then I got a bigger deal. And there you go. And it just sort of now I've got three publishers and I think 20 
22 books now or something like that. So yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because that, I, I, that was the very first book I had ever written and nobody wanted it. <laughs> That's the truth. Sent it out. And nobody wanted it. So, and after I became published and a little more popular, um, I just self-published it thinking that's fine. And a oxygen network called me and said, um, we'd like to do a show on this and use your book and use you. So they flew me into a studio and I spent a week and we did all that. And after that, then everybody wanted to publish it. <laughs> so <laughs> funny. And so I rewrote it with a lot of extras and new, new material at the time, because it was years later and uh, published it with Wild Blue, and there you go. So it was kind of a um, – it's been through a couple of uh, renditions. There's actually two audio versions. There's the original and the uh, the new one, so I'd recommend cool. the new one. Do you – are you the reader, or do you have a professional reader? No, actually, I don't read. I um, They – hire the readers you know the mm -hmm. publishers do that they give you a few as i'm getting older i'm really into audiobooks myself because my eyes are getting uh you know not as good and i can't read as much so i listen to a lot of the books so that's been a real good thing for me audio and my adult daughter loves podcasts uh uses them when she runs um when she exercises she won't listen to mine but but that that's for another time let's talk let's jump in on rodney now again in the book as it as all these books do we like to go back to his childhood and you know did he have a puppy and all that and we can if we want but uh i'm at this point we're not going to try and psychoanalyze him we, i've learned a long time ago that's that's a waste of time um as far as I'm concerned, for the facts of what's going on. But I think we can take it, in my mind, we can take it from his AWOL from the Army and sort of go forward from there, because that was a, certainly an indicator, if nothing else was, that this was a troubled person. Yeah, and I think that's, that's actually the point, um, uh, because up till his AWOL time, he was pretty normal. He was a pretty um, good student. He had girlfriends. He was popular in school, um, was, you know, going to be a paratrooper type thing. He had all these goals. He, um, he seemed to be just, just an average Joe, like everyone sort of liked him and there was no issues. Um, after his father died, um, you know, he went to the funeral and he went back to, uh, to the army and he was, you know, doing his service. And then they um, said that he started acting weird and was unable to perform. And, and all of a sudden he disappeared and he showed up at his mother's house when she was cooking dinner. And uh, so that was kind of the, the break for him. And, and, and yeah, you'd have to be a professional to go further into that, but that seemed to be the big change in his life that threw him into this um, world that he, uh, of killing that he got into. Now, again, whether it was used, the input uh, of being a photographer used as a, a part of his modus operandi, if you will. But um, I don't remember from the book or I don't see it. Was he a decent photographer or was he just playing with it? No, he was. Well, um, he was pretty good. Um, he was above average, uh, definitely, because he was the guy he was led into. Um, um, Oh, God, Roman Polanski's School of Photography in New York, and they only let in, I think, 200 a year and thousands applied. So he was, I would say, above average. Um, so he was good enough that they accepted him in there. So, um, but, well. um, so, so uh, about how long, so we could put sort of, again, for the listeners, put a date on this, because we are going way back. This is a long case. So around this time, and the time of his first uh, killing, uh, what, what what was the date on the on the first? Uh, well, the first the first one that his first attack, which is really what where it all started, as far as we know, uh, was in September, late September in 1968. That's and a long time ago. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, geez, I was six years old. So <laughs> anyway, so that was uh, Tally Shapiro. And um, her family had been, uh, I believe their house caught on fire or something. And so they were staying in a hotel 
um, down in in Hollywood. Like uh, I believe that's how it, how it happened. And so she was walking down uh, on her way to school. Um, I believe it was Sunset Boulevard, and um, Rodney had been trailing her um, in his car slowly, just kind of watching her. And eventually he pulled up and he uh, chatted her up and uh, eventually got her to uh, jump in the car with him to go to his, or he was going to take her to school. But on his way, he had to stop at his place and get something. That's what he told her. And then he told her that he would, you know, give her some candy and come on in and all that stuff. And it was really tough because she started getting upset out in the, out in the parking lot of the apartment. And, um, but she did go into the apartment with him. And that was the very first attack. Uh, she didn't die, um, but she was pretty close. And she was eight. Yes. If I remember, I mean, young, we've got a, he, he's all over the map with some of his attacks, but most of, at least in the beginning, it seemed to be there were eight, 11, 12, uh, you know, school aged. Yeah. It seemed to be, that was really his, what he was after um, for himself. Um, a lot of the crimes that came later, he, he apparently would select someone that was in the right age group of who was being killed in that neighborhood. Like he tried to kind of, emulate others um, that were doing murders like in New York and in LA and Seattle too. Well, that's why, I mean, at this point, I mean, I, and there's, I'm sure there's more, but I was just uh, taking notes when I'm reading your book. One of the things that helped him stay on the run as long as he did, we have the hillside strangler, the freeway killer, Juan Caron with his machete, Richard Chase, the vampire, Gerald Parker, my favorite, the bedroom basher, was the the Zodiac must have been sometime during this time as well, no? Yeah, everything. And actually, what happened, the one he, the most popular one he tried to copy was the two that he killed in New York. And that was the 44 caliber murder who ended up being the son of Sam. He had an idea to copy another killer. And uh, that was kind of how he would select. Because some of them did get mixed in with these murderers at first, as in... Uh, the cops just assumed it was the the killer of the time. Well, let's just go to what was his first murder. Let's talk about his first victim that died. Well, it it wouldn't be really until, um, geez, I think the first one that died must have been 1971, I think. Uh, because what happened with the Telly Shapiro one was he ended up getting caught and put in jail. But because Shapiro and the family moved out of the states. They they couldn't get them to testify, so he only got um, like a assaulting of a minor or something or possible molestation. So he, he was out within two years, and so that's when he started again. Was in the summer of seventy one, and um, that's kind of uh, where it kind of got a little bit more serious. You know, he would take the victims, and he started actually killing them and and even even torturing some of them well that's why again in, in uh, i just want to read this because it was chilling uh you have several uh entries in your book where you know reports from police or coroners or whatever about a particular uh young woman whose body is found um but uh at several places it was indicated that the injuries that i'm going to read some of them here were inflicted while the the victim was still alive Right. So there are some people, I don't remember, Bundy did some when they were alive, some after they were dead. He was into necrophilia and that. But um, yeah, they, it was really important for him to, for some reason, to choke them just until they passed out. And then when they revived, and then he would punish them again by doing some sort of torture, you know, with a curling iron or whatever it was that he was using. And he wanted them to suffer. And he, he revived some of them several times. So it was, it was a punishment, um, not, just, not just a rape and murder type thing. It was, it, he wanted to punish them. And I really don't know what that was about. I don't know if anybody does. But I want to read this. This is, again, it could have been any of the victims. The medical examiner's report listed that the body had massive trauma to both her head and face. The ligature was so forcefully tightened that the cartilage around her voice box and thyroid had fractured and the blood vessels in her eyes were ruptured. 
There were also bite marks on the right side of her neck. There were abrasions above her left breast and right shoulder. There was hemorrhaging around the anal rim consistent with blunt force trauma caused by penetration of a penis or another object. And this is just, I mean, you know, you can fill in different things. Um, but this is, again, like I said, it rose to the level of punishment, not just, oh, I raped someone. Look, what did I do? And I, I need to kill them. Yeah, I think he took more pleasure in keeping them alive and, and making them suffer for a period of time. I think that was his biggest thrill, so to speak, um, out of all of the things that he did. And, um, you know, where that comes from. And so why I say I think the first ones were around 71 was because when he got out after Tally Shapiro, he took off to New York, and that's when he enrolled in the the film school. And he eventually got uh, picked up and brought back to California. But when he was there during that time, um, two other girls were killed in New York, which were linked to him afterwards. We didn't know about them at the time. Um, so I, really the 1975 one with Julie uh, Johnson would have been the first, I think, uh, big attack back in California. So he came back. So again, he went to New York, then came back to California and sort of was in state pretty much in that area for all his career. Uh, yeah, that- yeah, pretty much. I mean, he um, he floated around a little bit for reasons, and he always had a reason, you know, like he had that locker up in Seattle where he would keep, you know, trinkets and parts from the, from the bodies and the victims and pictures, and he was down in, um, I believe, Houston quite a bit, and, and you know, and, and since all of this came down and he got put away for good and DNA's come out. Now he, they've tied him to, I think seven or eight other cases now in States like Nevada and Utah, um, Idaho and Montana. So you know, this might go really deep by the time they're finished, but now that he's dead, what, what can they really do with any of that? Well, what I think is interesting too, and we'll get to that, the, the number of trials and you, the mentioning of the DNA that on the final trial, um, which was uh, uh, brought, or at least the appeal was 2001, um, up to that point, I mean, it's still on death row, but now he's doing an appeal that because it's now modern times, as we term them, DNA was there. So even just appealing or dealing with the one crime that sent him away, and we'll talk about that later, the, 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 the two trials on that one, and now he's retrying it, um, trying to retry it, is that now they're, they are, they're free to add these other murders uh, to it. And it got even, well, we'll talk, it got even more tangled. So be careful what you ask for, um, yeah. because you're going to get it. And, and thank yeah. God it could have happened to a nicer guy. Well. <laughs> so, so, but again, this thing that I thought was very um, spooky and scary was this luring uh, of the, of the, so he did the, the uh, a tally escaped, but he ended up, there was one, where um, some, a neighbor or something saw him with a girl, a little a younger girl, didn't look like she belonged there, going to his apartment. And the police, and they found her body, but she wasn't dead. I believe he ran and they, do you remember that one? I mean, they're all. There are so many, actually. Uh, yeah, his his big thing. Yeah, and with the neighbor one, he, he got her later. She was going to work at ballet, ballet school. Yeah, now, so she, um, yeah, he would go down to the beach, Huntington Beach and other beaches, and he would be dressed like a photographer. He'd have like a camera around and, and all this sort of stuff. And he always had some sort of a story like, um he could win a contest or they could be number one. Uh, they're beautiful. He could take their pictures and they'd be entered in a contest and they could win money, you know, a couple hundred bucks or something. Right. And that was a lot of money back then too. Right. So, um, so quite often it would work and he would get their pictures and some of them would go even further and go to his place. Like he would tell them he's got a studio or whatever it was, and then get them even closer and take them home. And um so that was his MO. That was the majority of them. And we only know of a few that he actually attacked and and killed or attacked and they got away. So that was kind of um, a bad thing, you know. And when they searched his locker in Seattle, 
they found uh, hundreds of pictures of people, uh, mainly females. There were some males too. And they were all uh, young from 11 to 20, maybe. And uh, most of them were posed and a lot of them were not wearing clothes. And they were posed in a provocative sort of pose. You know, it wasn't just sitting, it was something. And so um, they actually put um, on the New York police website and the FDI, FBI for a while, the, um, a lot of the pictures, because they wanted people to try and identify them to see if they ended up being victims, if you knew who they were, um, kind of what happened to them. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, so he, he did that a lot. After the Talia, Tally um, conviction um, for, you know, the assault on a minor, was he convicted of any murders and then released? No, initially that was that was the sexual assault. That was and, it, and that, and then so he got, I believe, about two years, and then he got put on probation. And his probation officer let him go to New York, which was it's still a question. That people go, why would you know? That's crazy. So <laughs> he goes to New York, and he and he um, gets into the film school. Yeah. And while he's there, there's at least two that he killed that we know for sure of. Um, who knows how many else and um, because uh, he got himself into trouble and then he got sent back and it, you know it was kind of a back and forth thing with him um, of why he would do things and um, you know and and he never seemed to get sent to jail for what he should have been sent for now in in all the cases is it true or all the victims the bodies were recovered or were there any that, that ended up missing persons that just never, you know, surfaced? All of the ones that I covered were all recovered. Um, there, there's others, like I said, that kind of after that they come back to that um, some of them had never been found or there's just been um, parts like we don't know where, what happened to them type thing, but he's had some sort of connection to, but, um, nothing he's been convicted of. I think everyone has either been found or they're still alive. Um, um, yeah. Did he have a specific uh, way he tried to dispose of people? I mean, like in wooded areas or, you know, dumpsters or, you know, did he bury anybody? Well, no. He, well, his primary, um, when he was in the throes of what he was doing, you know, he, he seemed to pick locations and he would take the victim's body and pose them in a certain way so that when whoever it was that found the body would see them in a certain light. So he would quite often have them, you know, be like sitting on their knees and have their finger or their hand pointing toward their genital or something, or um, one he put on the little park side right across from Marlon Brando's house where she was completely naked and she was basically um, when you open Brando's door, for instance, you would look, you would see her genitals right at you, nothing else. He would, he would kind of form the body to show them in a certain way. And he wanted someone to see it. Uh, even the one that was found in the um, basement of the apartment he did that as well so he had some sort of idea not only torturing or making them suffer but also to show them in a certain way uh, well that was his art you know i mean he was that, yeah, yeah in a way i guess that's and some kind of, of twisted it. twisted art i guess to finish off with you know with the uh, rodin statue or something here i yeah. um now talk about uh, because it comes up in the trial uh one of the trials all the trials about a, a body or body parts found in either a, a, a forest or nature, you know, a, a, a national park or something. Let's talk about that case a little. Well, and that's kind of one of the the, the bigger cases, the um, Robin Samso. And um, so she was the one that was um, down on the beach with her friend and he approached them and, and wanted to take their pictures and that. And they, and the neighbor came along and said, Are you girls. Okay. And then he ran away, but he, he ended up tracking her down and taking her. And uh, when she was on her way to work and she never showed up. Um, so that was the one that he took her up into the, to the Hills 
um, outside of the Huntington Beach area and in and on Canyon Road there. And uh, what was it? So he took her up there, and um, that's where he buried her. Basically, he he raped, killed her, and put her up there. And that was a long, drawn-out uh, situation um, be, because we had uh, the um, forestry worker that had seen him um, on the forestry road, uh, standing on the side of the road parked, and he had the girl with, with him, and the, she was still alive at that time. And uh, she never reported it, and then she came back and saw him again at a later date, but he was all covered in dirt and what could have been blood. Um, and she still never reported it. And then later she said she went back up and found uh, a skull and then did nothing and didn't report it. And then later she was up again with another coworker who found a bone and thought it was an animal bone. So he threw it at her just for a joke. And of course it freaked her right out because it wasn't, it was really, the girls and i think she kind of knew that and was the skull was the skull also uh samsung yeah actually all of the body parts oh. they eventually you know after that that other guy um a, another forester worker even a third one actually came across the spot and was the one that reported it so um and then they did you know analyze it and it all ended up being that girl so uh, so that was a really twisted story because um the forestry worker they they used her as a witness um but she had quite a few breakdowns um during the time and it had a successful appeal saying that she wasn't reliable and then another one saying that uh, the jury was brainwashed. It was just crazy how many appeals were approved all on this particular case because of really strange circumstances. Now, before we get to that, um, his ultimate being caught, thankfully, by a, a young woman who escapes. Um, let's talk about, you know, like I said, he was doing things, you know, uh, occupational things here and there and got it into his head that he wanted to be on TV. So let's talk about how he got on TV and why your book is called The Killing Game. Yeah, well, back then in the 60s and 70s, uh, a popular dating show was The Dating Game. And um, so it's kind of like what you see nowadays, but back then they would have, you know, a, a bachelorette, one, and she would come out and behind a big wall would be three bachelors. And she, so she couldn't see them. And she would ask them questions, and they would answer. And, of course, at the end of it all, she's got to pick one, and they get to go on an all-expense-paid weekend uh, dating thing. So they get a hotel or somewhere, and they get to have you know, dinner and all that sort of stuff. And they get a weekend. And so um, he got on the dating game as one of those guys. And um, so what happened was uh, she, you can see the scenes nowadays. A lot of that's on around YouTube and uh, you could probably even probably download the whole show. Well, uh, let me just interrupt here for a second for my audience. This is an audio podcast and I went on YouTube and looked at it. It's chilling knowing what happened. Um, but the normalcy of the show, uh, which I, as a kid, I watched um, so I'm not putting any audio on the podcast. Do go on YouTube. So I recommend all you got to do is put on YouTube, Ronald Alcala dating game, and it'll come up for you. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people say that he, they thought he was creepy or kind of weird and stuff, but I think that's kind of a reaction because you know who he is when you're watching it. I, I think he was kind of a standard kid at the time, to be honest. You know, he had the long hair and the big, big heel shoes and flare pants and and uh kind of was smart alecky like um in his answers but i think that was kind of the the show as it is so if you like that kind of thing just like if you watch the bachelor or bachelorette these days there, there's things that they're going to say and do that seems kind of you know you gotta remember in the 70s too all the popular shows like welcome back carter and all those things he was he would fit on any of those shows they were all kind of smart smart alecky like that they all acted like that it was just if fitting of the times it seems a little bit kind of 
tacky now you might look at it, but um, yeah. Now, my memory is, of course, that they did go on a date with chaperones. I mean, that's the setup of the of the show, uh, which makes sense. You don't just, you know, go off on your own, which is a good thing. But as also turns out, she did not, which I guess you're allowed, she did not go on the date. She refused the date. And uh, I don't know if he got to go back on again, maybe in future. In other words, if that would be the shtick that they'd offer him another show or they signed saying, you know, the date may not go through if either party says they don't want to. So she didn't. And I guess her, her, she basically said she didn't cause he was creepy. Yeah. And it wasn't so much um, for the show, but it was in the back room afterwards in the green room. Um, she said that there was something about him that really, it, it made her hair stand up and she felt really weird around him. It wasn't like, anything he said at the show or the way that they were doing uh, the question answer period and all of that. And it wasn't his looks. It was something else um, in the green room that he, he, he seemed really creepy. It was, was her word. And she told them that she was not going to go anywhere with them. So what happened? Now, hey, I don't know if it was reported in your book or I think it, it was a, a secondary uh, video on YouTube years later they interviewed uh the guy that was sitting next to him uh who uh you know didn't win and so obviously he said what he his feelings were and he said at one point that uh alcala leaned over to him and said i always get the girl oh <laughs> and, and you know and, and the guy just thought he was being a smart aleck now yeah. um Tell us, it's a rumor, or it's it may be legend, but tell us what you have heard about him coming to the studio, and, and I'm going to come on, share it with my audience. Well, they say, well, the, the, the rumor was that he actually had um, just uh, attacked and raped and killed a girl, and still had her in the trunk of his car, and when he had to be at the studio, so he had to show up real quick, because he didn't have time to do whatever he wanted to do with that body at the time, right? He was running out of time. So he just left her in the back of the car the whole time. That whole day he was in the studio recording the episodes uh, because they, they had to sit in the studio all day because they recorded, I guess, four or five shows per day. So you would sit and go up. They'd call you and do the recording. So you had to sit there and wait. So he couldn't leave that whole day. And he had the body. Now, so again, he killed before, killed during, kills after. And um, obviously with all the, even Ted Bundy, anyway, I mean, hundreds of, 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 you know, attacks and, and killings of all these, they eventually, if we have stories of them and trials, they get caught. What, um, and it was again, because I believe an escape of Monique Hoyt, is that true? Is that what got him finally picked up? It certainly is what they got them, uh, got them onto him at the time because of uh, of the situation. And, and that's kind of like any other case. And that one was really unusual too. If I remember that they were out, um, Oh, that was the, um, Oh, geez. That was another one where he picked her up to pose for pictures in a contest and he needed to go to his house for equipment. And, and, um, but she ended up staying the night with him. So she wasn't, um, feeling threatened or anything. But well, I guess the, what... again, the story from your book, I'll refresh, is that, again, she, you know, was was probably not, uh, in other words, she willingly went. And, and when she was there, either before or after, they're smoking dope, and she didn't refuse it. You know, she says, well, it's a little weird, but she did that. And then he did attack her, but did not kill her. And this is according to her after she escapes or after she's interviewed, that she said she felt that maybe this was the best way to escape, to play to, oh, I'm sorry, and hey, you're kind of cool, and I'd like to stay with you, thinking that, you know, would give her some time rather than, you know, being bludgeoned to death. So she did. And she actually traveled with him to a, a gas station or something? Yeah, she was, she was going to go back home with him, and they were coming from the mountains. And then he stopped at the gas station, and um, that's when she uh, ran out. And she actually ran to the hotel that was a motel, I should say. It's right across, and they called the police. And, and that's where it all sort of ended for, for Alcala after they picked him up and uh, – 
it's the beginning of the end, really. He. So again, we're a little bit of fast forward. We have in the book, which is very uh, concise and detailed about the trials, and they're they're actually quite. Um, in the beginning, your normal trial, you you lay out the prosecution case and and who some of the witnesses were. Um, and again, I back up. The charge is that one the one woman, you know, rather than picking multiple yos, you focus on one uh, charge, and it was murder of the dismembered uh, Samso. Is that how it's pronounced? Right, right. And her first name was Robin. Robin. So it, that was the, the case that witnesses testified to, that, that any forensic evidence that was that case. And, yeah. you know, yeah. the defense did their, their stuff. And I'm not sure if it was the first case or the second case. Uh, the second trial was it was interesting what fell apart and did, although even during the trials, there were objections that the uh, trial lawyer, a trial judge overruled, went forward. And basically, in the first case, he was not only convicted fairly quickly of first-degree murder, but given death. Right, right. But that's always a problem, because uh, death automatically gets, in California for sure, automatically gets a, an appeal. Um, so that takes it back into the appeals court. And that happened, I think, three times with that particular case. And the, the last time they tried it, they tried it combined with, I believe, four other murders or three other murders that he did. So that was uh, kind of they combined these um, four murder cases and and he was convicted of all of them. Now, one of the one of the the, the not tricks, but interesting, I, I like the the legal you know, law and order stuff for the original law and order where you have the courtroom scenes. And one of the things certainly started with the first case and tried to keep it forward was adding kidnapping because in, in California, first degree murder can, it's not automatic. So, you know, you could be life without parole, et cetera, um, or, you know, a, a determinate sentence, but if, but if kidnapping's involved, death penalty can be right there. So they didn't just want the first degree murder. The aggravating um, uh, addition was the kidnapping. And that was, there was arguments, again, by his defense team to save his life, even if he's convicted of murder, if we get the kidnapping thrown out, can we prove she was actually physically, you know, dragged into the car? Uh, If we can get that thrown out, then at least he's saved. Right, right. There's so many components. And not only that, I think they wanted to uh, get death and so they, um, in order to do that, they had to show some sort of gross or, or aggravate it, like he had, he, how bad he was to these victims, right? It wasn't just like he raped and they died in, in the action. He was uh, actually torturing them and, and, and uh, making them go through this. So they wanted to make sure people understood because they did want him to die, right? They wanted to put him to death. And in each trial of uh, the first two trials, well, of course, the third as well, the family uh, of Robin, you know, throwing up their hands, oh, my God, you know, justice. And then he'd go away to death row. And then I don't remember the timing, but there was time between the first and second trial. And all of a sudden, guess what? He's won an appeal. We got to do the thing, a whole thing all over again. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was, it was a mess right from the beginning because first it was the forestry worker that kept changing her story and then had a, had a mental breakdown and, and uh, you know, then just like what you mentioned and there was all these issues all the time. And, and the bottom line too is uh, unfortunately in California, he would never be put to death in the current situation because of the way the California Supreme court has kept overturning uh, death sentences. Period. I, I think they've only approved three um, in in the last forty years or something outrageous. Like it's just it's just not a state that's going to go that way. So um, he he probably never would have been put to death, even if and when the convictions stand. But it sure sure shows what a waste of time and money and effort it goes into all of these trials and appeals. You know, he's been doing that. He was doing that for what, 30, 30 plus years. So, and as you, as you say, uh, the addition of the, the five other victims, yeah. someone might, again, it's very clear in the book, the legality of it, that now we're talking 2001. 
Okay, from the 70s, the late 70s, now we're 2001. And he spent several years between trials, et cetera, on, I don't know if, it's, if he's in the death row box, but he's technically on death row. He's in the death row prison. And um, as you're saying, nothing's going to move forward. But no, and it's just it's just entertainment. And for him, as each trial and appeal came up, he got more and more, you know, uh, cocky and and assertive. You know, he would start dressing up in a jacket and sunglasses, and he started being very, you know, a, a big wise guy. You know, he didn't nothing. He did, took nothing seriously, and and you know, and because DNA now was really big, they were able, and they had preserved uh, evidence, they were able, and they probably could have done more, but they were able to time to five more. So it's like, okay, if these witnesses were no good, you know, on, on Robin's case, maybe we'll, we'll get other witnesses and other evidence. And if that goes down again, if literally the, the jury says no, then we've got five individual other cases. And I believe he for whatever he he uh, copped to those five, but was well, fighting the well. Well, he decided to become his own defense lawyer, and so he fired his lawyer, and he started having his own case. And so he went in, and he would uh, ask. He got to ask victims and other peoples and family members um, questions as uh, as an attorney. And he started. He would change his voice and his at action and attitude when he was the asking them questions, and then he would. Uh, be himself he would go back and forth and it, and it was crazy because um the, the the people that he was convicted he would ask dumb questions like oh well you know i are you sure uh ronnie akel is the guy that killed you and the, or, or assaulted you and he'd go yeah or the witness would go yes well did i say i was sorry you know like he would be kind of weird and um and the the other than the Robin Samso, he almost didn't try to put on any defense against any of the other killers. And he, being his own attorney was bad enough, but he actually took the stand, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, and it was embarrassing. He, um, he admitted to, to all of the things he did, except for the Robin Samso. And in that one, he, he, it's not that he didn't admit to it. He was just trying to take down their... Um, their, their, what, you know, evidence, you know, they had her earrings that they found in his locker and the mother testified, yeah, it was the earrings I gave my daughter. And then he um, made them watch that dating game se sequence that you talk about because he was wearing these, these earrings that looked the same. And he said, see, that proves that they, I had those before she was, um, you know, before she was murdered. So it's, it couldn't be hers. And then he made them watch the, um, you'll, you might remember this Arlo Guthrie, who was an anti Vietnam war person in that he had a film called Alice's restaurant. And so he made the jury watch that. Uh, and nobody knows why he just did. Um, so he, he wasn't focused on defending himself. Really? He was, he's totally insane. He um, had no, I don't know what you call that. I don't know if he just didn't wasn't aware of how serious this really was, or um, what he had actually done to these victims and 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 the families and stuff. I I don't know what was going through his mind. He just would go places that nobody could could understand, and um, he it was just bizarre. They had no problem convicting him of all those murders on the same trial in a short time, no, no time at all. And so. once again, the penalty phase was pretty quick and it was death again. You know, you do something, you get convicted, it's death. And then it goes to appeal and it kind of goes around and around and it lasts forever. And, and there's a whole lot of time and money. And the worst part, you know, the worst part of these types of trials and retries is is the it's, it's the victim's families you know they go back into court and they have to live relive the whole thing it's not like the you know people say move on and it's not so much move on it's just sort of um letting the pain kind of fade away some so you can so you can live what life you have left like you know samso's mother and stuff they they're they're constantly in court and into some other thing and reliving this whole nightmare 
over and over and over for years. If you think about the, the toll that it must take on, on family members, and that's the worst part of all this, um, you know, I, I couldn't imagine, um, you know, I, that's what I mean. There's no settling. There's no moving on with your life in, this, in the fact that, you know, and, and, and when you talk to them too, it's, it's not just that. So, so the trial's over and then you hear about the appeal. And so they're waiting and watching the different things go through appeal. And then it, it gets overturned and then they have to start all over again. And this is after not only is through the trial they sit through, then there's the sentencing. And during the sentencing, all the family members have to write up their, you know, the, their, their statements like their own toward the killer in the court of what what should happen and what and what the death caused to them it's kind of like their own so they have to do this over and over and over again and if you do it over a period of years because it takes a long time um you're holding on to the events you don't let go of them so you know when you talk to these uh, members, a lot of them are crying. They're bawling their eyes out as soon as you start talking about it. Even if it happened 20, 30 years ago, it doesn't, because they can't let it go until it's over. So it's, it's just this uh, a terrible, long, painful time for them. Now, I didn't uh, go through your acknowledgments, but, which might be at the end of the, the book. Um, who did you, who were some of your sources? Well, I, I talk to um, just about everybody you see on the movies and the shows now, <laughs> like all the cops that were involved in Steve Hodell, who brought Alcala, who's the one that brought him from uh, Carolina back into L.A. when he was uh, being extradited and um, everybody involved and a lot of the family members and also the, the, the woman that um, uh, didn't go with him on the dating game. Um, just about everybody involved, a couple of the cops as well, um, one of the doctors, um, some of the friends of some of the girls killed. Um, yeah, quite a bit. You, 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 you know, you, you try to contact and get as many people to talk to as possible, but you've also got to be sensitive to the fact that it's if they want to. I don't, I don't want to involve someone if they're really uncomfortable with it. If it's, you know, my own standard is primary source. If it's not, what's the point? Um, but because the access of internet so easily, I mean, I, I just don't understand going into a case like that if you're not going to get involved. Like in the last one I just did in Murder Time 6, I even met the killer in prison and spent two weeks there. And you, you want to get as much information as possible and primary source, because then you're not relying on secondary. The only time I do that is when you go back into the twenties, like I'm working on books and it's all newspaper clippings besides the trial and all that, but you have to put it together from all the reports that you can. But even that has to be primary. If you, a lot of times you go on Wikipedia and that it's, it's okay, but they're missing a lot. Um, a lot of detail. Because then you go to that source and you might read it differently than how they did when they were setting up Wikipedia or any of these crimepedias or any of these websites like that. It, because that they read it a certain way and they write it a certain way. You might read it and then find other articles that were never mentioned. And it's how much time you want to put into it. I Anyone, have you read anything that, that he has? Now, he wrote a book, which I he wrote a book yeah. called um, You, the Jury. Was there, did you read that or do you know if there's anything in there that would give any reasonable clue? I mean, it's always self-serving when uh, someone, a Bundy, anyone, you know, cries on camera or, you know, but uh, so do, so is anyone ever, the book or anything ever given yeah. us any clues? I mean, through the book, you go through it and it is all, it is all self-serving. It is all, um, I, I don't know you call it a manip manipulation, maybe. I'm not sure. Um Where's heads at good enough? But anytime you interview or talk to people that were in prison or that did these kind of murders, it's pretty unreliable what you get from them. I think the best thing you can get from them is things that don't get asked commonly. You want to find out about how they feel about relationships and other things in the world. I've got four or five killers that I've got letters and interviews with and then um, you want to ask them things that 
not about the crime. Because the only thing you're going to get truth about is things not about the crime. I, I don't trust anything they tell you about the uh, events of the murders that they were involved in. It's usually self-serving. It's usually for a reason. So, um, you know, his book was just more just fluff. Well, as we know, any story about serial killers uh, is sad uh, for the victims. Um, And this one, I think each, each case I cover, there's a little twist that makes it even, you know, turning the knife harder. And that's again, the multiple trials where there wasn't, uh, and and who knows, there might have been another appeal, but he's dead. So at this point, at least, they can say, well, he, he ended his years in prison, which isn't pleasant, and um, he's gone now. So it won't, it won't happen again. So I guess that's the, the, the best we can say. Well, this has been a fascinating hour spent with Alan R. Warren, the book, The Killing Game, the true story of Rodney Alcala. But why don't you tell my audience about how they can uh, uh, find your books or maybe you, I know, I think I found you through your Facebook page. So they obviously could leave you an email or a, or a, or a direct message if they either want to talk to you about something or just uh, say they liked your appearance. Um, AlanRWarren.com is probably the best place. Um, you can go through Facebook, Twitter and all those, but it's it's usually gone through someone else. I have someone else kind of helping me out with that right now. And uh, but Alan R. Warren it would be the best spot. It tells um, you about everything. No caps, no spaces. Nope. Just just. I always say that about my website. I say murder most foul, all one word, no caps, no spaces. Otherwise, I don't know what you'll get. Yeah, so and then, I wouldn't have picked R. It wasn't that I'm pretentious. It was. It's just that there's another Alan Warren, spelt exactly the same, that writes books, and he's a foot doctor. So I added the R to separate us. Well, again, I want to thank Alan so much for this uh, this hour. Um, I always learn something new. I all I enjoy these so much to to be able to talk to people um, who are invested in this, and I think. Um, I will, again, look forward to to coming back to you again. Great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great day. And once again, I'd like to thank you, my loyal listeners. I hope you found today's episode interesting. And if so, I hope you'll tell your friends, spread the word. Um, Anyone can visit my website, which is murdermostfoul.com. That's Murder Most Foul, all one word, no caps, no spaces. And there, there's a link to my email where you can leave comments or maybe even cases you'd like me to look at. So um, until we meet again, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.